Well, good morning, everybody, and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Good to see you guys. Good to be uh, up here uh, preaching. It's been a little while, and um, good, to, uh, good to be together uh, before uh, uh, this Christmas season. If you don't know me, my name is Tony Sorcy. I'm the campus pastor here, and um, always good to open up the Word, always good to go to uh, God and His Word to hear from Him um, as His people. Uh, we are just a few, few days away from Christmas, and we're right on the verge of all the season's insanity. Amen? We're right on the verge of it, right? It's, it's like right there. Out-of-town family is in. The kids are done with school. Amen, kids? Don't school? And all the kids said? Kids, not teachers. Bonnie. And all the teachers said amen, too. Kids are done with school, they're done with their Christmas parties, they're done with their Christmas recitals. Uh, the big family gatherings are upon us, and of course, our Christmas Eve services. So excited um, to gather as, uh, as one church over in Crown Point for our Christmas Eve services. Uh, the responsible people among us are getting their last few gifts and buttoning up their last few details, uh, while the not-so-responsible are just beginning to cram in all their shopping and everything else. And the even less so responsible just got reminded by me mentioning this that they actually have some stuff to do before Christmas. They've got to get going. And so the next time we see each other on a Sunday, Christmas will be over. Uh, we'll be all hungover from the holidays, ready to move on and ready for the spring. Amen? Yeah. And yet the central truths at the heart of Christmas... And the central truths at the heart of Christianity will be as true and as relevant as ever. And they ring true outside of the Christmas season. As pastors here at Bethel Church, we are committed, committed to helping all of us, all of you, to view life through the lens of a Christian worldview, through the lens of Scripture. And this Christmas for us has been no different. For the last two weeks, we've been discussing the incarnation, the process in which God assumed flesh, the process in which God came down to be with us, to be one of us. We've been talking about the birth of Christ, but we've been doing it in a little bit more of a theological emphasis. That's what we've been doing over the last two weeks. So the first week, we talked about the miracle of virgin conception. That Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. God assumed flesh, or as Alan Hirsch called the incarnation, the enfleshing of God. The enfleshing of God. Jesus was God from eternity past, and he assumed a human nature. He took on flesh. <clears throat> Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. If you remember that phrase from last week. Last week we talked about the person of Christ and the historical formula of the hypostatic union. And we encouraged you not to get freaked out with theological terms. That's why God's given us a brain. Uh, God is complex, and some of these things are complex. But giving our mind to these things, giving our attention to these things, enhances our view of our amazing God. And we kind of we looked at that historical formula of Christ, two natures, one person, Jesus, the God man, fully God, fully man, one person, a mystery for sure, a mystery, no doubt. And so this week we, we conclude our incarnation series, but we continue with our theological emphasis by examining why the incarnation was necessary for our redemption. What does God becoming a man have to do with our salvation. 
what does God assuming a human nature, what does God being, what does Jesus being fully God and fully man have to do with God coming to save us? And this sermon is going to explore the conclusion that John Aerosmith came to when he said this, the Lagos, right? You remember that from John 1, 1, the Lagos, the word, the word became flesh. The word assumed the human nature of a man, both body and soul. If Christ had not assumed the human nature, body and soul, he could not have saved body and soul. And we're going to examine that conclusion there. We're going to come to the same conclusion. And to do that, we're going to go to Matthew's gospel. So go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1, we're going to read 18 to 25. And we're going to take a look at this birth narrative even more specifically, we're going to look at the two names given to this newborn baby and then dig deep from there. You guys ready to go? Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Scripture says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Here's Matthew's account of the birth of Christ. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Not so fast, Joseph. Saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Don't be afraid, Joseph. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah from Isaiah 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Emmanuel. Jesus. God, we know that you are Emmanuel, God with us, and we know that you are with us right now. Be with us, Spirit, as we dig into your word, open our minds to understand the deep, deep, joyful truths that you have for us here. Encourage our hearts by grace. Strengthen us in your word. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. Nobody writes just to write. People write for a purpose. People write for a reason. And Matthew writes for Jewish people. He has them in mind. He has those Old Testament Jewish people of God in mind as he writes. And because that's the case, he labors to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy and anticipation. For the Old Testament people of God, they waited It was their expectation, it was their anticipation for one to come to rescue them. They've been waiting for this. They've been down, they've been out, they've been under the oppression of the Roman government. They've been waiting for years for this one to come to rise up a king. They've been waiting for this. And so Matthew writes to these folks who have in their history, in their story, Uh, The expectation and anticipation of one who's going to come. And Matthew's doing a couple things here in this narrative to prove that point to an audience that would have been very, very concerned with earthly lineage. They would have been very, very concerned with this Messiah, this one that, that was the one that was spoken of, where he came from. What were his origins? 
They would have been very, very concerned about that. They would have given an eye to that. And so, for instance, Matthew writes here, we have the origins of Jesus told through the eyes of Jesus' earthly adopted father, Joseph. Right? That's, the, that's kind of the lens that Matthew writes through here in Matthew 1. So he writes through the lens of, of Joseph, his earthly adopted father. And it was clear that this coming rescuer and deliverer would come through the lineage of David. If you're a note taker, Jeremiah 23, 5-6 and other passages speak to this. This rescuer, this hero would come through the line of David. And so Matthew highlights the fact that Joseph is in this Davidic lineage. He is from this family. He is from this branch of the Old Testament people of God. And he highlights that through the angel of the Lord addressing him as Joseph, Joseph, son of David. Joseph, son of David. See, sometimes we just read this up and we're like, oh, Joseph, son of David. That's pretty nice. Matthew writes that very specifically. And that would have been a huge, huge deal for someone who would have had their eye on the coming of the Messiah, the coming of this rescuer, and whose heart would have been full of anticipation for this one to come. The angel addresses Joseph as Joseph, son of David. Joseph being Jesus' adoptive, earthly father, in adopting and taking Mary as his wife, adopts Jesus who had no earthly father because he was born and conceived of the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Joseph adopts Jesus into this Davidic lineage. And so Jesus is from this lineage as well. In fact, Matthew begins his entire gospel with these words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Because Matthew knows who he's writing to, and he knows that he needs to convince some that this is the one that was promised. This is the one from the lineage of David. Now, quick side note. Matthew does his genealogy and traces it back to David and Abraham to prove to these folks that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. When Luke does his genealogy, he traces the lineage of Jesus back to Adam to show that Jesus is the Savior of all men. Why? Because Luke writes to non-Jews. Luke writes to Gentiles. And Luke wants these Gentile non-Jews to know that Jesus has come for all men. All men. And so as Luke writes, he writes to a different audience. So that was just like a little 50 cent extra there for you guys. Kind of nerdy, but we've been kind of being, we've been nerding out in this theological emphasis the past three weeks. So we'll continue with that. And so Matthew's very, very concerned for this Jewish audience. Another thing that Matthew does, really kind of appealing to this kind of an audience, is he points out that the virgin conception is the fulfillment of Isaiah 7. And you see that there in verses 22 to 23. Matthew now brings in Isaiah. All this took place, he says, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This is the one that you've been waiting for. This is the hero that you have been anticipating. And in the showing that Jesus fulfills this prophecy, Matthew helps us to see that the coming of Christ, the God-man, is connected to the past and is coming true in the present. God coming down to be with us is part of God's redemptive story for the cosmos. Where do you have Jesus? What is your view of Jesus? Is he perpetually that baby in a manger at Christmas time? And that's the only time you come to visit this story. That's the only time you come to visit this narrative. Some of us, culturally, we have Jesus perpetually in a manger 
during one month out of the year. Matthew tells us that Jesus is part of God fulfilling his redemptive story and plan for the entire cosmos. And Christ is at the center. God is bringing fruition to what he had promised long, long ago. And you've got to understand, Matthew's audience would have been geeking out about stuff like this. They would have been looking for things like this. Their hearts would have been racing as they heard that Jesus was starting to fulfill these things that they've been waiting for. Now, Matthew highlights both the person and the purpose of this newborn here in Matthew 1. And he does that with two names. Two names. The first is Jesus, and the second is from that Isaiah prophecy, Emmanuel. And what we see from Matthew 1 here is that this newborn, this one who has come, this baby is called both Emmanuel, God with us, and Jesus, God saves us. Emmanuel, God with us, and Jesus, God saves us. Jesus is God come down to be with us in order to save us. When you combine Emmanuel and Jesus, Jesus, we see both the, the person of Jesus, that he is God in human flesh, and the purpose for which he came to come and save us from our sins. And that's kind of kind of be our outline for this message. And we're going to examine these two names, and the whole sermon is going to kind of flow through those two names. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, God saves us. So let's look at the first name here, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. The name Emmanuel highlights the person of Christ. God with us. God become flesh. Jesus is the God-man. Fully God, fully man. And he has come to be with us. And we have spent much time on this point the last two Sundays. But we cannot exhaust that truth. This is the core of what we believe. And it's the core for how God has saved us. God has come to be with us. This newborn is Emmanuel. Now... Knowing that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, we know that God is always with us. Theologically, no matter if you're a Christian, non-Christian, in a sense, we know that God is always with us. We cannot flee his presence. We can't flee God's presence, no matter where we go. And this is what we affirm when we say that God is omnipresent. We mean this, God is everywhere at all times with his entire being. So in one sense, we know that God is with us and we cannot flee his presence. In fact, Psalm 139 verses 7 to 12 asks this question. Where shall I go to flee your presence? Where shall I flee from you? Where shall I go to hide and not be near you or in sight of you? And the psalmist goes on to say in verses 7 to 12 of Psalm 139, whether it's up to heaven, down to hell, far east, far west, or I try to hide in the darkness. No matter where I go, I cannot escape your presence. God is with us. He's omnipresent. We cannot escape his presence. And in a sense, God is with everyone. Or as the catechism that we use with our kids asks, can you see God? And they answer back, no, but he can see me. God is with us. He is omnipresent. And this fact was true before the very first Christmas. But in the incarnation, we see that God is coming to us in a new way, in a different way. God is with us up close and personal, literally. God assumed flesh. He became one of us. God entered into human history by assuming human flesh. God came to us as one of us. And so God has always been with us. But now in the incarnation, he comes to us in a very special and unique way. 
way. And this, this sermon asks why. This sermon asks why. Why did he do that? And the answer is this, to rescue us from our sins. To rescue us from our sins. God has come down to be with us, to save us from our sins. And the next name given of this baby, Jesus, highlights that. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, God saves. The name Jesus highlights the purpose of God coming down to be with us. As the angel of the Lord tells Matthew, you shall call his name Jesus. Why are you going to call him Jesus? For he will save his people from their sins. Many of God's people anticipated, as I said, the coming of this Messiah. And they were anticipating a hero to come and save them. But Jesus came to save them from a different kind of oppressor. See, the Old Testament people of God were expecting a hero to save them from Roman oppressors. The problem in their mind was that they were under the rule of Rome and they needed a rescuer. A mighty king who would come to conquer the man, right? The Roman government. And the Jewish people are like, down with the man. We need to overcome and defeat the man, the Roman government. We need release from our oppressors. We need release from those who are over us. We need someone to come and rescue us, be a king, be mighty, win a victory, and make us a sovereign nation again so that we can go back to the days of David where he was slaying his 30,000s. And we can be mighty and sovereign again. And they were not that at the time of Christ. So they were looking for more of an earthly hero. More of a political, national hero. And this is where they missed it. They were looking in the wrong place. They knew this Messiah would be a mighty king. They nailed it on that. This Messiah is going to be a mighty king from the lineage of David. But they missed that he would be a suffering servant as well. Isaiah 53. They missed out that he would be one who is wounded and broken and crushed for our iniquities. Matthew tells us that the mission of Jesus has to do with dealing with a greater oppressor, namely our sin and a greater problem that we have, namely sinners being at odds with God. Jesus came to defeat a different kind of enemy, our sin, and to solve for us the problem of us being separated from a holy God. Friends, sin is our problem. Being separated from God because of our sin is our dilemma. And Emmanuel Jesus comes to rescue us and to restore us back to a right and favorable standing with God. This is the why of the incarnation. This is the why of God becoming flesh. And so with that in mind, I want to share with you four things that Emmanuel Jesus teaches us about how God saves us. Four things about how Emmanuel, Jesus, God in human flesh, come to save us, how he goes about saving us. What are some implications we can draw from God coming to this earth, assuming flesh in order to save us? First thing is this, salvation is by grace. Salvation is by grace. There is a major point that needs to be made in the fact that God came down to be with us to save us. And it speaks to the way in which God saves us. There is one beautiful word 
that describes the nature of God's salvation. And that word is this, grace. 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 Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved. You and I, if you're a Christian and friend, you can be saved if you're not. You and I are saved and you can be saved by sheer and utter grace. Undeserved, unmerited grace. God coming to us in Christ proves that salvation originates with God, not man. Salvation originates with God, not man. Salvation is God's initiative, not man's initiative. Salvation is God's effort, not our effort. And this is all to say that God saves us by his grace, not our works. We needed someone to come rather than God calling us to him. God comes because of our condition and because of our absolute inability to do anything to change our condition. God had to come to us. God had to become like us so that God could save us. Phil Riken, who we've had here as a guest speaker, says it this way as he was meditating on some of these birth narratives. He says this, God was visiting his people. He was entering our situation from the outside because without his intervention, we could never be saved. Salvation is not a human invention, but a divine visitation. It is not something we achieve by going to God, but something God has done by coming to us in Christ. No one is ever saved except by the grace of God. Please see that this is where the Christian story is divergent from all other major religions. Every other major religion, every other system of religion and life says you do. You earn. You make yourself lovely. You obey an order for God to love you. You do A, B, C, D, and E, and then you'll have life. And then you'll have salvation. The Christian story says this. I love you in Christ, and I'm coming to rescue you. And it has nothing to do with your effort. It has nothing to do with your works. Salvation is by grace, not by works. And certainly not by grace and works. You add works in, you ruin grace. The gospel is not God helps those who help themselves. The gospel is not God meets us halfway. The story of our salvation is not I'll love you if you obey. The gospel is not a two-way street. It is God's one-way love to undeserving, ill-deserving sinners who need to be rescued from their sins. It's not a two-way street. It's not, I'll do a little bit, meet you halfway, I'll do 50, you do 50, I'll do 90, you do 10, I'll do 99, you do 1. Salvation is 100% God's effort, 100%. And just as God pursued Adam in the garden, do you guys remember that narrative in Genesis 3? The man and the woman eat of the fruit of the tree. They essentially say, God, we're not going to submit to your rule and reign. We're going to live life on our own terms. We don't want you to be our ruler. We don't want to submit to you. We want to submit to ourselves and ourselves only. And they rejected God on that day, a cosmic rebellion. And just as Adam and Eve rejected God, did God reject them in return? No. 
What we see is Adam and Eve running and hiding in their guilt and their shame, trying to run into the dark. And God pursues and calls out to the man, Adam, where are you? And he brings Adam out of his darkness into the light. And he kills an animal to make atonement for his sins. And he promises one day that he's going to send someone to crush the head of the serpent that deceived them. He gives them the promise of salvation. God continues in the birth narrative. In the manger, he continues his pursuing ways. God's pursuing ways. He continues this pattern of pursuit of sinners in the incarnation. God comes to us to save us. Not you come to God and make yourself acceptable. No, I send my son and make you acceptable through his work, not yours. One of my favorite authors, Mark Driscoll, commenting on this idea says this. The gospel is the story of guilty sinners and self-righteous hypocrites visited by a perfect God who lived the life they couldn't, died the death they should have, and rose to give the gift they could not earn. This is salvation. This is the manger. This is this baby. We are rebel sinners who run from God and break commandments. God is Emmanuel Jesus who pursues rebels and was broken for our sins. If you don't hear anything else today, if you don't hear anything else out of my mouth ever, please hear that God is offering to you forgiveness of sins a righteousness that you haven't earned, a restoration back to him, and his offering has no strings attached. No strings attached at all. It is a gift. Salvation is by grace. First point. That's the first thing we see in Emmanuel, Jesus, God come down to be with us to save us. Second thing is this. We need mediation. You and I need mediation. We need a mediator. Every relationship has conflict, right? And all the married people will attest to this like that. Every relationship has conflict. Every relationship is a mess. I would also add to that, messes worth making. Relationships are messes worth making. Every relationship has conflict. If you are in relationships with people, they will inevitably be a mess. I experienced this last night while playing a cutthroat board game with my wife, my brother-in-law, and my sister-in-law. Okay? Every relationship is messy. And sometimes on the ride home, you have to apologize to your wife (laughs) for things you said during said board game, okay? Relationships are a mess. Now, most of the time, two parties can work it out themselves. Two mature parties can come. They can talk. They can apologize. They can reconcile between themselves. But every once in a while, something big comes up in a relationship. Something major that needs to be dealt with. And the two sides need help reconciling. My position as a pastor, I find myself often in this place. A husband and a wife just at odds with each other. Maybe they're separated and they need reconciling. Every once in a while, you need help reconciling. You need someone objective. Someone who isn't going to take sides. Someone who loves both parties. Someone uniquely positioned. Someone who understands the needs of both sides and knows what to do to reconcile the relationship. Friends, because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because we've been breaking commandments since day one, we are alienated and separated from God. 
Sin has caused relational conflict, relational strife between sinners and a holy God. And what we need is a mediator. We need someone to come and stand in the gap. We need someone to come between us and God and reconcile us. We need mediation. We need someone to play this role in our lives. And we need a type of mediator. We need a type of person to come and stand between us and God that's not in the same sinful predicament as we are. We need someone who's not like us, but we need someone who's like us. We need someone who's like us in every way that we need him to be like us. We need him to be truly one of us. But we need someone who's not like us in every way that we need him to not be like us. Sinless. We need someone who's not in the same predicament as we are. Someone who's not separated from God as well. One who could represent us to God. One who could represent God to us. And thus resolve this conflict between us and God. Friends, I have good news for us. We have a mediator. We have this mediator. Someone has come to be with us, to help us. And as the God-man, Jesus fulfills this role of mediator perfectly. Look at what Paul says to a young pastor, Timothy. For there is one God, and there is only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. How could he represent us? He was made like us. How could he be for us in a lot of ways, in the most important ways, he was not like us, sinless. Jesus is uniquely positioned because of his person as the God-man to be our mediator. And this is the wisdom of God in Christ, friends. This is the wisdom of God in Christ. God became flesh for this very reason. God knew exactly what this newborn baby needed to be. He needed to be God and man for a very specific person. The writer of Hebrews says it even more emphatically. He says that Jesus had to be made like us in order to be our substitute. Look at Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers. That's us. In every respect, so that he might become. He had to be made like us in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Prophets represented God to the people. Priests represent the people to God. Jesus is our priest. He represents us. He goes on behalf of us. That he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation. If you guys remember that word from 1 John. To make satisfaction for sin. To satisfy the wrath of God. To make satisfaction and payment for our sins. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. We have one that has come from us. To represent us. To be our priest. And he is unique in that he is God and man. And he is unique in that he is not in the predicament that we are. He can mediate this relationship. We have a mediator. There's one God and one mediator. Jesus is that mediator. He represents God's needs and agenda. He represents our needs and our dilemma as well. And so how did Jesus do this? How did Jesus become our mediator? And how did he go about this mediating, propitiatory work of satisfying, making satisfaction of God's wrath and dying for our sin? Well, those are the last two things. Number three is this. 
He lived for us. He lived for us. You know, we're always quick to point out that Jesus died for us. Amen. Amen. We affirm that. We sing of that. That is core to what we believe. That is core to how God saved us. He made sacrifice for our sins. But we also need to see that Jesus lived for us too. He died for us, but he also lived for us. And the effectiveness of Jesus dying on the cross hinged upon his holiness. The effectiveness of Jesus dying for us hinged upon his living for us. He died for us, but he lived for us too, friends. Jesus could not have been the God who saves us if he hadn't been the God who lived a sinless life while with us. Emmanuel come down to be with us has everything to do with the cross as well as his life, how he lived. And this is what we give our attention to here, his life for us. And it was his perfect righteousness that qualified him as our savior. Paul brings this out in his letter to the church at Rome when he says this, for by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The theology goes like this, that when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree in the garden, we were implicated in Adam's sin. Because Adam's sin was passed down to everyone that would come from him, a sin nature and the guilt of Adam's sin. And you might cry out and say, man, that's not fair. I wasn't there. I wish I could have had my crack at the garden. I wish I could have had my crack at the tree. You would have done worse, okay? I know some of you specifically, you would have really messed it up. We were implicated in Adam's disobedience. He was our representative. He was our substitute, so to speak. Adam's sin, we're implicated in that. But before you can cry out and say, that's not fair, please know that because God accepts substitutes and because God accepts representatives, we're also implicated in the work of Christ as well. For by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus, his life, his death on our behalf is credited, is counted to us by faith. Wayne Grudem says it this way. I'm going to quote Grudem again later on. We quoted him last week. Get used to it. We got his books out in the, out in the lobby there. We just, we love him. We appreciate him. Extremely biblical. Grudem says this, Jesus was our representative and obeyed for us where Adam had failed to obey. Jesus lived for us. And where we constantly fail, Jesus did not. And where we constantly disobey during his life of 33 years, Jesus did not. He lived the life you're living. All the ups, all the downs, all the temptations, all the scenarios, all the relational snares, occupational snares, all the temptations of the heart, everything. Jesus went through that. He lived it 33 years worth and he failed, failed to disobey. And he obeyed perfectly on our behalf. Where we constantly fail, Jesus obeyed. Paul brings this up in another way in his letter to the churches of Galatia. And we really kind of come back to this birth idea here in the, in the narrative of, of, of the Gospels. Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, when God said, now's the time. When God said, now I'm going to send my son. 
God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. We're under the law. The law which reflects the holy nature of God. The law which says, thou shalt not. We break in our heart, our actions, our attitude, in our nature. We needed someone to come under the law to submit to the law and to fulfill the law on our behalf. Because by the time Jesus had come, everybody had broken commandments. And that's exactly what we do. We break commandments. It's our nature. Why did he send the son born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons? So that we might be not under the law anymore, but under grace. So that we might be received into a loving relationship with our Father. Where he loves us not by works, but by grace. This is what Paul is saying in Galatians 4. Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf. Jesus had some haters back in the day. And they said, you've come to abolish the law. You're you're, you're going against the law. And Jesus says, no, to the contrary, I've come to fulfill the law. I've come to, on your behalf, fulfill the law. So that I might redeem you because you're under the law. Jesus' obedience is what theologians call the active obedience of Jesus. His passive obedience was where he hung on the cross and just absorbed the wrath of God. That was his passive obedience. His active obedience is while he lived the life you and I are living, he perfectly fulfilled the law and obeyed in every respect. This is his active obedience. The fact that Jesus perfectly throughout his entire life conformed to God's law in action, attitude, and nature for mankind. He lived for us. And Jesus' obedience would have included both perfectly doing all that God has commanded us to do, as well as not doing all that God has commanded us not to do. It's both sins of omission and commission. We're so quick to label sin as commission, but we fail to see that half of the law is not in the negative, but in the positive. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those aren't don'ts. Those are do's. And Jesus comes and doesn't do the things that we're not supposed to do. And he perfectly does all that God has called us to do. Jesus perfectly loved God with all of his heart, soul, strength, and mind. And loved his neighbor as himself. Again, if you're taking notes, Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus was, was one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. 1 Peter 2.2 tells us that Jesus committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I find this one fascinating, tells us that Jesus knew no sin. Knew no sin. Jesus' enemies, at the end of his life, sought fiercely to find cause to accuse him, discredit him, and send him to the cross justly, but they couldn't. They sent forth false witness after false witness after false witness, and nobody's testimony could hold up in a court of law. And it was a kangaroo court, too. And they couldn't have it. They, they, they still couldn't get it to hold up. Jesus' enemies with stones in their hands were ready to stone a woman. And Jesus said, first ones without sin cast the first stone. Nobody could discredit Christ in his life. He perfectly obeyed. As Michael Horton points it out in his systematic theology, Jesus was not only sinless, but righteous. Not only a non-transgressor of the law, but the joyful fulfiller of all righteousness. And that righteousness that, that, that righteousness that Jesus lived, that's the same righteousness that's credited, credited to our account by faith in our salvation. And so because of his sinlessness, Jesus qualifies as a mediator. He qualifies as a substitute. 
He didn't die for his sin. He died for ours. And this leads me to our last point. Last one. He lived for us. He died for us. He died for us. You know, a lot of people were crucified in the first century. Do you know that? A lot of people hung on crosses in the first century. Why? Rome was in power at that time. The cross was invented by the Persians, perfected by the Romans. They loved to crucify people and hang them in the public. Why? To intimidate you. To intimidate you for treason. To intimidate you to rise up against this Roman Empire. A lot of people were crucified in the first century. Crucifixions were commonplace. Furthermore, a lot of people throughout history have, been made, have made sacrifices for friends. Jesus was not the first person to attempt a sacrifice. People have tried to sacrifice for friends, family, nation, causes. What makes Jesus' death distinct? What makes his sacrifice distinct? What makes the death of Jesus effectual? And what does the incarnation have to do with that? Again, Grudem, systematic theology. I recommend it to you if you want to dive deeper into some of these things. He argues that the full deity of Jesus was absolutely necessary when it came to the sufficiency and the the effectualness of his death. Grudem points out only someone who is infinite God could bear the full penalty for the sins of all those who would believe in him. Any finite creature would have been incapable of bearing that penalty. Friends, you and I could not have died this death. We could not have made this payment. We could not have been offered up as a payment for the sins of men. We couldn't even be offered up as a payment for our sins. Why? Because that would be works-based. That would be works-based. Sinners can't be saviors. Sinners need a savior. If Jesus is not without sin, he would have needed a savior himself. His death would not have been able to redeem us. But friends, we know that he was sinless and his death was effectual. His death was valuable. His death did accomplish what it set out to accomplish, to pay for sin, to satisfy the wrath of God and to restore us back to himself. You know, some just assume When we talk about the Christian story, when we talk about the cross, some just assume that it was just simply an act of sacrifice that we claim that saved us. I got into a little bit of a discussion with uh, a friend of mine uh, that I went to high school with on Twitter. And just to let you know, I don't recommend arguing theologically over social network. It's messy. It's dumb. I try to stay away from it. Okay? Some of you guys give a lot of time to that. But I found myself in a conversation and he said something to this effect. He said, he just kind of put out there, he goes, you know, if the Christian, of, if the Christian story of Jesus is true, cool. But I'm sure you can find a lot of people willing to die for everyone else's salvation. Some share this sentiment. Some share this thought. That it was just the willingness, that it was just the sacrifice of Jesus. And I went on at 140 characters a crack to explain Right? In a simple way, why it was the unique person of Jesus that made his death effectual. I said a couple, some things like this. Willingness aside, would their life and death be valuable enough to accomplish this salvation? When Christ died, it was the righteous for the unrighteous. Find me someone that lived a righteous life like Jesus. A lot of people died on crosses in the first century. Only one was the sinless, eternal Son of God who was raised on the third day. 
It's not just simply the act of sacrifice. It's the who that was sacrificed. It's important for us to see that the sufficiency and the effectiveness of the sacrifice was wrapped in the who of who was sacrificed. In our case, it was the God-man. Jesus' death made satisfaction for sin because of the worth of his person. Here's how Peter puts it. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. How were you redeemed? How were you redeemed? Precious blood, infinitely valuable. A lamb without blemish or spot, totally pure. That's Christ. That's Christ. And he needed to be like this. Have you guys seen the Zales commercial that's floating around now? Where the kid's at the counter, right? He's at the glass case. And he points to a ring. And he gets out his like wrinkled up buck and change. And the lady looks at him. She's like holding back a little bit of laughter. Like, dude, you haven't even paid for tax at this point, kid, right? And behind him is standing his dad with his arms folded. And he flashes the plastic, right? And the dad's like, let him think he's buying the ring, right? I got it. I got it. I got this. You guys seen that commercial? Yeah? It's pretty cute. As soon as the dad flashes that card, we see how the payment's truly going to be made. We see where the sufficiency for that payment is coming from. Being crucified on a cross in the first century itself has as much a value as that kid's pocket change in that commercial. The real power of the cross was not that it killed a man. It was the type of man that was killed and murdered on that cross. The God-man. The only begotten, unique, sinless son of God. He died on a cross not as a result of his own sin, but as a payment for ours. Hebrews 7. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests who have come before him. Like the whole Levitical sacrificial that's come before him. He has no need like those priests to offer sacrifices daily first for their own sins. And then for the sins of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus did not need sacrifices made for his own sins. Why? Sinless. Perfect. He was not a sinner. Jesus willingly offers up the sacrifice. And is himself the sacrifice. He's both the subject and the object of the priestly ministry. When you had a priest come up, you had someone who performed the ceremony. You had someone who came and brought a sacrifice and they actually put the sacrifice on the altar and that thing was sacrificed. Jesus comes and is both the subject and the object of the sacrifice. He comes and willingly offers up the sacrifice and he is himself the object of the sacrifice. Jesus fulfills the priestly role perfectly on our behalf. And I'm hating to get real nerdy and technical and theological with you guys today, but this stuff is rich, man. This stuff is deep. He is our high priest who offers a once-for-all sacrifice for sins for all who would believe. Now, we can get deep in the details in the incarnation all day long on this. In fact, books, many books, many men have given their lives to these things. But to suffice it to say it this way, in every way that it was necessary for our salvation, Jesus was like us. And in every way necessary for our salvation, Jesus was not like us. He was our mediator. He was our Emmanuel, God with us, to save us. He came for us. He lived for us. He died for us. He rose for us. God came down to be with us, to save us. In the last four minutes, I want to give you three implications 
of this truth. Because what good is theology if it doesn't move you? What good is theology if you just leave this place smarter? We want to grow in our love for God. We want to grow in our worship. And we want to grow in our effectiveness as God uses us as missionaries. The first is this, joy, worship. Joy. One of my favorite lines in all the Christmas narratives is Luke, 10, 10, Luke 2, 10, and 11, where the angel comes to the shepherds and he says this, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Everything that I've just shared with you this morning is good news of great joy. Every other religion in this world, friends, offers good advice. If you want to be loved, if you want to be forgiven, if you want to make it to heaven, here's some advice. Do A, B, C, D, and E. The emphasis is on you. Here's your work. The gospel's good news. Something that's already been done on your behalf. You can't do anything about it. The only thing left to do is respond to it. And what is the response to good news? Joy. Unadulterated, unfiltered joy. God came down to be with us, to rescue us, where we could not even help ourselves. God loved us in this way. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Again, we rejoice. For unto you is born in this day the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Good news, not good advice. It's for all the people, anyone who believe, anyone who would believe. God has given us a Savior. And the response to that should be joy. Joy and worship. And we should be of all the people in all the world the most joyful, regardless of our circumstances, because circumstances come and go and fluctuate and up and down. Christ remains true and eternal, risen at the right hand of God. This should be to our joy. Second thing is this. Since God came down to be with us and die for us, die for us, he will forever be with us in our lives and before us. Let me say that again. Since God came down to be with us and die for us, he will forever be with us in our lives and before us. Do you know that? Do you know that? God has risen and seated at the right hand of God and has given us these two promises of the new covenant. I will remember your sins no more and I will never leave you and never forsake you. Because he came down to be with us and died for us, he will forever be with us and forever be for us. That too should be cause and room for joy. He is with us and he is for us. All of God's energies towards you in Christ are love, favor from a father. His wrath is removed. Your condemnation and guilt and shame because of your sin is removed in Christ. It was dealt with and paid for there. And some of you guys mope around here and mope around in life as if that's not true. God is with you. He is for you. He loves you. And all you need to do is look 2,000 years back in history and see his perfect sinless son being crushed on a cross for your sin to know God's love. He is with us. He is for us. And we carry that with us as we go, as we live our lives. And this is with us throughout in the ups and the downs and the circumstances and in our sin. God's love comes to meet us in the dirt and the grime and the junk of life. And friends, we got a lot of that. A lot of that. And God's love is right there. I love you. I don't know how many different times I've just heard God subtly in my heart say, Tony, I love you. Last one, 
Trust and believe. Trust and believe. Salvation's a gift. It's not earned. The benefits of Jesus' death are applied to those who believe. Gifts are given and gifts need to be received. And I know there's someone in here that for you, Christ is just a theological truth. Christ is just a fact. You've been hearing it your entire life and there is no power in the cross for you. It's just something that you mentally assent to. It's just a truth. It's just a fact. You don't know this in your bones. You don't know this in your heart. There's some of you that are peeking over the fence into Christianity. You're kicking the tires. You're giving it a test drive. What's this all about? God's calling you today to believe, to trust, to embrace his son, to see the magnificence of this gift and to receive it and embrace it and trust in it. And if you've never heard the message of Jesus in this way, I invite you to respond right where you sit, right where you sit. Because sometimes we can make a work out of walking down an aisle and saying a prayer. God loves you right where you're at in Christ. Embrace him today. Embrace him today. And if you've been one who's kind of had Jesus just in this theological category, just in this factual, mental ascent category, and his power has not manifest itself in your life, and you don't know Jesus like this, where your heart is wrenched by this grace, and your heart is moved unto joy and unto worship, I invite you to know Jesus like that. I invite us to move past the theology and to see Jesus in reality. Because sometimes we can have a theology of things, but it cannot be a reality in our lives. Not just the theology of God become man to die for men, but the reality that God came and died for you on that cross. And he bore your sin in your place. And may this season, may that truth be unto you good news of great joy. Good news of great joy. We're going to sing in a second. We're going to respond to this church, this truth. And church, let's do that. Stephen, come up. Let's do that, church. Let's respond in joy. Let's respond in trust. Let's respond in belief. For some of you, it might just be an exercise again. Just readjusting and reorienting your heart back to this being joyful once again, believing its depths once again. Maybe for some of us, it might be the very first time, whatever it is, I invite everybody in this room to believe, to trust, and to respond and be joyful. Let's pray.